0: invite you to take a uh, Bible and turn to the book of Judges, and particularly Judges 8, which is on page 183 in these Bibles in the pews. For those that may be new with us today, we try and observe communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, at least once a month. Uh, we, We try to average that. And on the day we have communion, as the service ends, there'll be ushers at the doors to receive an exit offering that this month is designated to help with the relief efforts in Hawaii. Uh, So I hope that I want to tell you now so you might be prepared to give toward that at the very end of the service. Before I read from Joshua chapter 8, let me uh, do a little review because it's been a couple of weeks since we were together looking at Gideon. The book of Judges covers a period of a couple of hundred years from the time God's people the nation of Israel had come out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and then entered the promised land from the time they entered the promised land until the time basically the land was lost and the nation was scattered was 400 years Uh, During that time, they had kings, and they were a monarchy, then a divided monarchy. But this book covers a couple of uh, 200, 250 years leading up to that time when they had their their first king. And God raised up people during the time of judges who were called judges. But there's no similarity to what you and I think of judges in our courts of law today. Uh, They were raised up and called by God because they carried out God's judgment. Sometimes that was in the form of military by driving out enemies. At other times they settled disputes among God's people themselves. Hence the term judges. So they were individuals and there were 12 in all uh, over that period of time that God used to deliver his people from their enemies. Now, we began at chapter 6, because three chapters, Judges 6, 7, and 8, talk about this man named Gideon. And in chapter 6, we meet him, and that chapter begins by setting the scene that for seven years, for seven years, the enemies of the Israelites called the Midianites had, had, would wait until they had, the Israelites had prepared their fields, their crops were ready for harvest, and then just when it was time to harvest them, and in an agricultural society, you could see how critical that food was, the Midianites would come in and had huge numbers. And they would come, and all that Israel could do, because they were no match militarily for them, would be to flee to the hills and the caves. And this had gone on for seven long years, and it tells us that the people cried out for God to deliver them and there at the beginning of chapter 6 we send see that God sends a prophet because the prophet needed to tell them not what was happening they knew what was happening but they had not connected the dots as to why it was happening it was happening because they had fallen into idolatry they had pursued other gods after God had delivered them so the prophet tells them this and then the scene goes to this man named Gideon. And we find him in the middle of chapter six. He's, he's uh, threshing wheat in a wine press, which is just below the ground so that the Midianites cannot see him, what he's doing. He's an unimpressive man from an unimpressive family. He's from one of the little known tribes of Israel. He is the youngest of several siblings, meaning that he has no legacy. He is least important in the family line. And we see that this angel, who ends up being the angel of the Lord, begins by telling Gideon that he's a great warrior and that God is going to use him, and he teaches him to worship right there. He's to build an altar, and he offers sacrifices to God. And then he gives him a commission to go and to tear down the idol given to the, the goddess, god of weather, Baal, <coughs> that's in his father's uh, yard, so to speak, in an Asherah pole. And he goes at night because he's fearful, and he, he tears those down. And then God tells him that, that he will use him to lead him against the Midianites. And so we came to chapter 7, and that's where we left off. The Midianite army is all gathered. They're going to come again as they have done and take everything that's, that's there, for, that's ready for harvest. They're four miles away, and Gideon has, has 32,000 soldiers with him. The Midianites have 135,000. So the Lord says, that's, you have too many, Gideon. And he says, tell the people whoever's fearful they can go home. 22,000 accept the invitation and walk away and God says that's still too many now he's down to 10,000 against 135,000 so he does this little test with how they drink water and ends up with 300 so now it's Gideon and 300 soldiers against 135,000 Midianites obviously Gideon is fearful he's timid he's has his doubts as to whether God can do this so God tells him to go down and He's going to let him overhear a conversation between some soldiers in the Midianite camp. So he and a he and his servant sneak up to the outskirts of the camp. Again, it was four miles away, and they overhear a conversation. Basically, the end is about a dream that one of the soldiers has had, and a man near him interprets it and says that the meaning of that dream that you're having is that Gideon is going to come in here and is going to destroy us. Well, when Gideon hears this, he's his courage returns and he says right there, he worshiped, right on the spot when he heard that. So we left off where Gideon takes his 300 soldiers and they divide into three camps. He's, he's with a hundred and then there's others with a hundred and he, the strategy is a questionable one militarily. He says, I'm going to give you a torch and you're going to put a jar over it so it can't be seen. And in the other hand is a trumpet. <laughs> If you'd been one of the soldiers, I think you would have said, uh, let me get this straight. (laughs) 135,000 of them, and we're going in with torches and jars and a trumpet. (laughs) So they surround uh, surround best they can the camp, and they smash the jars, and the torches immediately appear, and they blow the trumpets, and they say, for the Lord and for Gideon. And right there, we see a crack in the dam because God has not told Gideon to tell them to say that. And he's added something. It's for the Lord, but Gideon says, and Gideon. So we see that this humble servant, now there's pride that begins to creep in. Now I gotta be honest with you. I've read the Bible for decades now and taught the Bible. And there's certain accounts that I wish were a little bit shorter. I wish they would end before they end. And this is one of those I wish that ended at chapter 7. Because Gideon looks very, very good at the end of chapter 7. But what we're going to read almost seems like, how did this get in there? Because chapter 8 is confusing. And I won't clear up that confusion in the few moments we have right now. I wouldn't clear it up if we had hours to talk about it. But if case as I read through some of this, we don't have time to cover the whole chapter, then uh, you will see when I say, I kind of wish the story ended at chapter 7. But this is a strong reminder of what we have in the Bible at times is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. It's not saying that we are to follow this example or that we are to do as these people did, as much as it's saying, this is what happened. First, we see pride. We see pride all through this chapter, but first it's by one of the tribes called the Ephraimites. Verse 1, and the Lord said, I'm sorry, I'm in Joshua. You really will be confused then saying, oh boy, it did take a turn, Judges. I told you these font get smaller every week. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. In other words. Gideon and his men and the tribes he's called with him they have the Midianites on the run and he sends for for Ephraim one of the bigger tribes of Israel the most famous tribe right behind Judah and they take offense why didn't you call upon us then it goes on and he said to them And notice how he he uses his words. A soft answer turns away wrath. And he says, what have I done in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizur? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So they are upset that he has not called upon them to help defeat the Midianites, and Gideon controls himself, and he does not return insult for insult. Instead, he speaks to them with kindness, and peace then is restored. So we see this odd thing of the pride of this tribe toward Gideon, but now it gets worse. Beginning in verse 4, and Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So they're still chasing the Midianite army. So he said to the men of Succoth, these are Israelites now, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they are exhausted and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmona, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmona already in your hand that we shall give bread to your enemy? so gideon said well then when the lord has given Zebun and Zelmona into my hand i will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars now does this sound like that guy back at the wine press and from there he went up to penuel and he spoke to them in the same way and the men of penuel answered him as the men of succoth had answered and he said to the men of penuel when i come again in peace i will break down this tower now Gideon has crossed over to the eastern side of the Jordan River. His troops are still pursuing, but they're weary, they're tired, they're hungry. And so he asked these, these men of Sukkoth, Give us provisions. We need, we need food, we need nourishment, we're exhausted. And they say, Do you already have the hands of those kings? Um, why should we give food to your troops? Who are they concerned about at that time? They're concerned for themselves. They know if you are defeated, Gideon, guess what they're going to do? They're going to come back and they're going to, to wipe us out because we help provide, provide for your soldiers. Now, if the leaders of Succoth and Penuel gave aid to Gideon's army, uh, then they would have suffered the consequences if they had lost. So they're concerned only about their safety and security. Their motivation is fear, and Gideon's operating under the promise that God had given him back in chapter 7, verse 14. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. He was pursuing them, knowing God's going to finish this. Now, the story's ironic, because what happens next is that Gideon returns, and he does just what he says. Look at verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Haris, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. He basically says to this young man, tell me the names of all these people. Tell me the names of the leaders of the town that that we spoke with. And he writes them down. So then he came to the men of Succoth, and he said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmanah, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city and took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them, taught the men of Succoth a lesson, and he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Now, that phrase, from all I could study, where he taught them a lesson, is an understatement of something that was far more uh, horrendous than they go into details here. We don't know exactly what it means, but apparently it was very, very bad uh, what he did to those men. Now here's what's ironic. The towns, these Israelite towns uh, that avoid Midian's wrath by not helping Gideon, they ultimately are siding with Israel's enemies and then they are treated as Israel's enemies. Now we get to the hard part. <laughs> we get to some very perplexing choices, Now I won't read, I won't read all the, the passage, but it's in verses 18 through verse 32. And we first have the execution of these two kings, Ziba and Zalmona. And Gideon questions them in front of his men, and he says, "Describe for me what some of these people looked like that you killed." And he, and he says, essentially, they they looked like you. And he said, "Those were my brothers." And then he he kills them. He has them killed, which seems to be more of a personal vendetta than an obedience to God. Now it's like a personal revenge because he says, "You killed my brothers." And then. In verse 22, the people, after all this is finished, the people say, we want you to be our king, Gideon. And Gideon says, no, I will not be your king. God will be your king. But how about everybody giving me one of your gold earrings? And he becomes tremendously wealthy with that action. So what's perplexing about this is that he says he doesn't want to be king, but then he begins to live like a king. It's as though he wants the privileges of being a king without any of the responsibilities. And by the time we come to the end, he has all these wives. He has multiplied wives. He has a concubine just like a king who would do that. Um, and then the third thing, look at verse 27, And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel hoard, or some translations say prostituted themselves after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was pursued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So he also, this third choice, what's bizarre, is this strange case of the ephod. Now, what was an ephod? It was part of the high priest attire that God had prescribed in Exodus chapter 28 and in Exodus chapter 39, and it goes into great detail as to what the, how this thing was to be prepared. It was a vest, and it had all these costly, colorful materials in it, gold, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen, and then attached to the ephod was this breastplate. And the breastplate had 12 precious stones in it and each stone represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're set in four rows like this. And then there was a pocket or a pouch on on the breastplate which contained these two things called the Urim and the Thummim. And those were objects that were used to discover God's will on particular matters. They didn't look like dice, but just to give you an example, it would be like if you said, well, does God want us to do this or not do it? Is it yes or no? And you might take these stones out and roll them a certain way or show them and say, oh, well, God is saying yes through this. So God had instructed there was to be an ephod that the high priest was to wear, but there's nothing here where God is telling Gideon to do this. And Gideon does it and it becomes an object of worship for the people. What originally was designed by the Lord to be an object to help with the worship of God now becomes an object of the worship of, uh, that goes to God. So whatever else can be said about this rather strange account is that the matter seems to be that Gideon was desiring after more than what God had already told him. And Israel, it says in verse 27 in one translation, loved it with a godless passion. And then when we come to the end of the chapter, it says in verses 33 and 35 that Israel enjoyed 40 years of peace under Gideon. In other words, their enemies no longer attack them, their crops and all that. But they fall back into their old ways, and when Gideon dies, they they immediately go back basically to idolatry and no longer worshiping God. Well, what are some life life lessons from this? (laughs) You may have walked in here today and say, what does this have to do with us today? I mean, this happened uh, back around 1000 B.C., 1100 B.C. Gideon should have ended as he began in chapter 6 by worshiping God. Nothing is mentioned in chapter 8 of God speaking, of Israel, of Gideon worshiping. None of that 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 the story starts off with in chapter 6 is repeated. In fact, the last time we have recorded of of Gideon hearing God's voice is in chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. So he should have continued to worship daily and continually worshiping God. That's what you and I need to do. I know that's Christianity 101, but it's indispensable if you're to walk with him. Daily time, even if it's just for a few moments, a few minutes, spending time with him in prayer and in his word. You can use... There's so many helps today like Table Talk Journal and, and, and other devotional guides. I, I read on a regular basis, Dreams in the Desert. I don't know if you have that little book. It's, it's tremendous, written by a missionary's wife. They came home from the mission field back in the early 1900s, and she basically nursed him for the last seven years of his life. And during that time of solitude, you might say, of, of being away from crowds, she, she writes this book. Sometimes it's excerpts from other books. You may need to recruit a partner for weekly encouragement and accountability. Second, another life lesson is you and I, as we read this, we look at Gideon, we look at these, the Israelites, God's people that had seen God work on their behalf. They had witnessed this. They saw the 300 defeat the 135,000. Be aware of our hearts' proclivity to idolatry. The 10 Commandments begin, you shall have no other gods before me. Would we pick that to be number one? I doubt it. I would think, well, probably the biggest spiritual issue, the biggest stumbling block might be something else. It might be one of those commandments that comes later. God begins right there, not only because he is first, but our hearts are so inclined to to worship idols. You say, well, what kind of idols? We don't have idols in our culture, so to speak. Well, the answer comes in the rest of the verse. You shall not make for yourself, in the verse from the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. What are we inclined to worship? Everything in the world. Anything in life can serve as an idol, which you seek to give you security and safety and significance. Job, friends, husband, wife, children, house, Career, grades, money, good health, appearance, whatever it might be. We ha- our hearts, as John Calvin said, are idol factories. And so there's a continual proclivity, and we have to be vigilant in our own hearts toward, toward our proclivity, toward idolatry. And third, let's thank God for our perfect Redeemer, Deliverer. All 12 of the judges, that if you read the entire book, were very, very imperfect people. Gideon, Samson, any of them. uh, Some of the judges, you wouldn't know their names if I were to read them right now. We call them the minor judges. And yet their names show up in Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of fame of faith, which astounds most of us that that read that, uh, of saying that guys like Gideon were of great faith when they seemed to be so compromised by the end. But it's obviously a contrast. Those redeemer deliverers were very imperfect sinners like you and me. But our perfect redeemer is the Lord Jesus. Our perfect judge is the Lord Jesus. He delivers and he redeems. And so in just a moment as we come to the Lord's table, we come commemorating a perfect redeemer deliverer. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks that these were foreshadowings of the Messiah who would come that you sent the Lord Jesus to redeem us from our sin. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.